Um, so two weeks ago, I turned 45, um, and, which I know, yeah, right, yeah, which I know for a lot of you is pretty young. Um, uh, but it's well past the midpoint of the average American male's lifespan. And uh, in a little less than two months, so in January, Marilyn and I will have attended this church, CBC, for about 13 years. I know. Um, that's about 25% of the time that, of the entire lifespan of the church in this building. And uh, from what I understand, that, that moving into this building happened pretty close to right after the church was, was founded. So we've been part of, uh, this, of CBC for about a fourth of the time that CBC has existed. But I still feel pretty new uh, here. I, I, but when I look out today, uh, I realize that I'm actually becoming part of the old guard. Um, we're one of the, uh, the you know, not, there's not that many people around anymore that have been here for more than 10 years. Uh, I know I'm the youngest of that old guard, um, but I'm still one of the, the old guys. Um, and this is a time of transition for CBC. Uh, we've been regrouping a bit after COVID. Uh, we're looking for a new pastor. We're reorganizing our leadership structure. We're renovating our website and thinking about our digital outreach. We're trying to uh, think about a new direction for the church and sorting out the best way to get there. And I was trying to think, I knew uh, Peter uh, Corfield had asked me to speak a couple of weeks ago, maybe about, about a month ago, and I was trying to think about what to speak about. Often when um, I speak here, there's a, uh, a Bible passage that's already been picked, but today it was sort of whatever I wanted, um, and, uh, or I guess whatever God wanted. So I was trying to think about what, the, uh, what I should talk about today, and as I was waiting, I, I, I subscribed to the, um, the digital version of the magazine Christianity today, but I don't get the, the paper version in the mail. But occasionally they try to get me to do so by sending me a paper version, um, which often I don't read, but I happen to have it over breakfast and looked at it. And uh, an editorial um, by the editor-in-chief from, I think this was the August, September, so they send, I guess, the old issues that they weren't able to sell um, for free. Uh, the, so the August, September issue, I think it was uh, July, August, maybe, uh, has an editorial by the editor-in-chief, uh, Russell Moore, who looks at how often at church and at work and in politics and in life in general, we justify the means that we use to accomplish things by the godly ends that we're seeking. So we try to say that the ends justify the means. And this, uh, Russell Moore argues, and others have noted as well, is incredibly dangerous. Although uh, in the article in his op-ed, he's mostly focused on politics, I think it's important for us to think about that, that fact that means um, don't, or the ends, yeah, the ends don't justify the means in this moment of CBC's history as well. The way that we get somewhere matters. And people can be very passionate about the way that we get places. When GPS-enabled smartphones were first available, uh, but before most non-nerds had them, um, Marilyn and I were both frequently amused and, to be honest, sometimes a little annoyed by the amount of time that was wasted when people uh, debated the best way to get somewhere when we had our GPS uh, uh, smartphones. I remember one time, uh, soon after we were married, we were at my grandparents' house in Springfield, Illinois. They've, they've since passed on, but um, we, were, we mentioned that we were headed to uh, go check out a bookstore. Um, I think it was around Thanksgiving, actually. And all of my uncles and my grandfather started debating the best way to get to that bookstore. Um, I, I had a GPS-enabled map on my phone. And I didn't really need the directions, but we listened for a while. I, I had my new wife. We were, I was trying to be polite. Anyway, we, were, um, uh, we, we listened for a little while, and then we slowly started moving towards the door. And as far as I know, the debates continued, perhaps to this day, uh, about uh, what the best way to get there was. Um, means 
the ways mattered in my grandparents' house. And of course, the ends, I, I don't mean to say that the ends don't matter as well, the ends do matter. And in fact, the difference between means and ends sort of collapses at any level more granular than the final eternal kingdom of God. Short of that, all ultimate ends, all goals are just waypoints along the journey. They're just means towards that final end. But I don't think we're often that great at setting goals either. Still, I, I trust that God is merciful to, enough to know what our true needs are, even when we confuse them for something else. Many of you probably know the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus asks rhetorically if any uh, father would give his son a stone if he asks for bread. And, and of course, the answer is meant to be no, of course we wouldn't, but what if a son asks for a stone when what he really needs is bread? Uh, my sister, uh, I, was, uh, my, I was talking to my sister on Facebook this week, and she, and I, I actually know that she has a, this candle because she gave it to us as well. She has a candle that smells like a, a special St. Louis treat toasted ravioli. I don't know if any of you have had it. It's, a, it's um, really a, a lie. It's fried ravioli. You can actually buy it at Trader Joe's here. But um, anyway, uh, it's, uh, it's something that in St. Louis we eat and like. And so my, uh, my sister sent me a candle. She has one herself. And my nephew, who's just turned two, uh, likes the smell of it because it smells like toasted ravioli, and he often wants to eat it. And my sister naturally refuses. Um, I, she recognizes that this is more stone-like than bread-like, although toasted ravioli itself is questionable. Um, my, uh, uh, I, and I hope and believe that our Heavenly Father interprets our desires beyond what we often express in our prayers when we ask to eat the candle. Often uh, children who are learning to talk will say one word when they actually mean another. And parents often correct their children by telling them what they actually mean to say because they know that this will help the children the child ask in the future and also better understand their own desires. And I think this kind of correction is sort of what Jesus did in his prayer in Matthew 6, what we sometimes call the Our Father or the Lord's Prayer, depending on your tradition. Um, he uh, teaches us to ask for a couple of things that he recognizes as good things the hollowing or the making holy of God's name. Uh, hallowed be your name. It's not a statement, it's an ask, it's a request uh, for God's name to be made holy. The coming of the kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Provision to satisfy our hunger, forgiveness for sins, and for deliverance for those hard times that test our faith. That's what uh, lead us not into temptation means. Uh, Jesus teaches us to, that to want these things, both individually and collectively, is good. And as a church, we should want all of these things. And in fact, the, the, all of the requests are made in the, uh, the plural sense. We, we give us this day our daily bread. Um, but it's also notable that many of the things that Jesus asks God for in his prayer are also the things we just heard the devil tempt Jesus to get through unauthorized means. The only two gospels which give a detailed description of the precise temptations of Jesus are Matthew and Luke. Mark mentions that he was tempted, but it doesn't say, Mark doesn't say how he was tempted. So in Matthew and Luke, we get uh, the story that we heard just read just a few minutes ago. And those are also the only two gospels that contain the Lord's Prayer. So I, I think there might be an intentional connection on the part of Matthew and Luke. It's good to ask for daily bread, but Satan tempts Jesus to use his power to break his fast and feed his human hunger using other than human means. It's good to ask to be delivered from evil and not led into the time of testing, but it's not good to put God himself into the test by throwing ourselves into that, um, that situation. 
It's right to ask for God's kingdom to come, but we cannot achieve that kingdom by bowing down to worship Satan in any form that he takes. In that uh, editorial by Russell Moore in Christianity Today, um, he writes um, that temptation to justify, he writes about temptation to justify uh, means with ends, and he quotes Eugene Peterson, who uh, translated or um, paraphrased the message, that, uh, the version of the Bible that many of us have, have read. Um, and Eugene Peterson writes, the devil's three temptations of Jesus all had to do with ways and means. Every one of the devil's goals was excellent. The devil had an unsurpassed vision statement, that the ways and means were incompatible with the ends. When I first started working at my current job, I, I sort of half reported to a senior level director who was married to a pastor. And one day after a particularly difficult meeting with a lot of tense and uh, controversial topics in her office with a bunch of different people, I was walking out of her office and she, uh, I was the last one to leave, and she expressed some frustration um, with the difficulty that we had in uh, getting what both of us wanted done. But she said to me as if also reminding herself how we work is as important as what we do. The point was that she felt it was worth working through the stubbornness and the egos in the room because the people we were working with mattered as much or as more than what we were trying to do. She's since gone on to a better job at another institution, but her advice has stuck with me over the last decade. The how is at least as important as the what. And this is uh, something that we're clearly shown in the Bible as well. The Old Testament, for instance, is full of stories about, uh, often very deeply troubling to me at least, about people who are severely punished for working towards a seemingly good end in the wrong way. Aaron, Moses' brother's sons, are killed for offering unauthorized fire. Moses is denied entry into the promised land for striking a rock to provide water, even though God had told him to do that in other instances before. Uh, king Saul, the first king of Israel, begins to fall from power and is rebuked when he offers sacrifices that should have been offered by the prophet. And uh, I mean, one of the most disturbing of all is uh, the story of Uzzah, who reaches out and touches the Ark of God to keep it from falling off a cart and is struck down. Each of these men likely felt that the goal that they were working for justified the unauthorized action they took to achieve the end, but each was severely punished. And, and I think in each case, the sin comes from a, not only a lack of faith in God, which it does come from, but also an overly inflated view of the man's own importance, their, uh, their own sense of their own importance, and their desire to prove this importance to the rest of the community. So Moses striking the rock, Aaron offering, or Aaron's sons offering incense, making a sacrifice that wasn't authorized, all communicated to God's people that the person doing the action was really important and specially empowered by God, and perhaps blurred the line between the work of God and the work of the individual. And this kind of thing, I think, is enticing for Christian leaders. I remember when I was a student leader in the campus ministry that I went to in college, um, there was often times when a car would break down. Sometimes it was on mission trips, sometimes just in the course of daily life. And I still cringe a little bit at a memory I have uh, when a vehicle had died and um, I stopped and, and prayed for the vehicle to start again. And the act of prayer was, of course, fine by itself, but uh, I, I think that the reason, I'm pretty sure that the reason I was doing it was in order to show that I was a righteous man whose prayers were powerful and effective. I mean, the car didn't start, but still I was showing how godly I was by praying over a dead car. God was merciful enough not to slap 22-year-old Doug, but in my more mature years, I certainly kind of want to. Um, true faithful requests to God 
show the helplessness of human actions. And, and you know, maybe you're not a personality type who wants to shine as a leader or as one specially anointed, but maybe for you the temptation is to find a human leader who can represent what you think is important. The Israelites asked the prophet uh, Samuel for a king like all the other nations have, and God granted their request, but Samuel said in doing so they were rejecting God as their king. The temptation is so easy to fall into. So ask yourself, do you unequivocally support individuals or pastors or politicians or informal leaders even or institutions as the one or the, the institution that will establish the kingdom that you are seeking? Do you oppose those? Do you fight with those who oppose your earthly king? Do you want CBC to be like all the other nations, all the other churches in some way that we're not? Because you feel like if only we had that one common thing, we would be in a better position to advance the kingdom. When we pray, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, when we pray that prayer, we are recognizing that God as king is also the bringer of the kingdom. Your kingdom come recognizes that his is the kingdom and the power and the glory, and it is his to bring, and anything uh, less than that is idolatry. So how can we avoid that idolatry? How can we assure that our means are worthy of our ends? The Apostle Paul offers a template for this in his first letter uh, to the church in Corinth. So in 1 Corinthians 9, he uh, expresses actually to begin a fairly utilitarian approach to evangelism when he writes, I have become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some. That at first might seem like he's sort of justifying ends with means, but immediately after that, he writes a kind of really scary um, warning about the consequences of ends without good means. He says, do you not know that in a race, think of the marathon today, all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize, and everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do the, so to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like someone running aimlessly. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. No, I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. So I, I see two important lessons in this uh, lesson from Paul. First, the way of the gospel is one of self-denial and self-sacrifice. Paul sees it as similar to the training athletes like the runners running the marathon today undergo whenever uh, they're getting ready for a competition or a race. They adopt a strict diet. They exert themselves sometimes even beyond what the mind thinks the body can bear. I often think that when we use the ends to justify the means, we're justifying something that's maybe easier or more pleasant for ourselves. In fact, Jesus tells us that the only way to participate in the kingdom is to despair of one's own life like one with a death sentence. Any other path is like the temptation of Jesus. Uh, sorry, is like the temptation of Satan. Um, when Jesus started to preach this kind of self-denial, to say, take up your cross, Peter, the leader of the disciples, uh, took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. And Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. And then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for my sake, we'll find it. When you think of the future, 
of CBC. Do you imagine a church that continues the tradition of those who founded it over 50 years ago? Do you imagine a place that carries forward the traditions and values that you brought into this place, however long it was, 10 years ago for me, 13 years ago for me, and that you've labeled, uh, labored to pass along to the next generation? Do you imagine a place where you can rest because the work that you've done has inspired new believers to follow in your footsteps? Or are you willing to give up everything you care about and drop your fondest memories of the past and dreams of the future and help walk your own cross to the place where earthly dreams are put to death? Which of these is the way of Jesus? Now, I know this is a difficult word that doesn't really feel like good news to me. And as I said at the top of this message, like it or not, I must now count myself again, uh, among the old guard. And I love this church and I'm nervous about the ways it could change in the future. But like Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, I'm troubled that there may not be a way other than sacrifice and self-sacrifice to move forward. And of course, there's a danger that the sacrifices that we make and the crosses we uh, take up come at greater cost to others than ourselves. And this, I think, is another uh, risk of using means, or using ends to justify means. This is what Jesus rebuked in Mark 7 when he said to the Pharisees, you have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. For Moses said, honor your father and mother, but and anyone who curses their father or mother will be put to death. But you say that anyone that, that declares what might have been used to help their father and mother as korban, that is devoted to God, uh, and you therefore never let, uh, you don't let them do anything for their father and mother. Thus you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you've handed down, and you do many things like that. If we are to make sacrifice or change our behavior, we should be very careful about any way that our change hurts others. Now, sometimes this is inevitable, but I think we should try to make up for the ways in which our, our personal obedience costs others. A person might feel called not to work on Sundays, but it might be incumbent on them to ensure that those who depend on their work are not harmed by their conviction. We might feel convicted not to eat or drink certain things or to watch particular movies. But if so, that conviction is for you or for the person that feels it. It's not, um, it, not self-sacrifice to impose that sacrifice on, on others. And I feel like in the evangelical church, we're particularly predisposed to this temptation to try to, to uh, see a sacrifice and make others do it. So I think it's good to watch out for that. The other hard truth I see in uh, Paul's uh, letter in 1 Corinthians this passage in 1 Corinthians, is that um, successful ends are not necessarily a guarantee of personal reward. Paul anticipates the possibility that his ministry might be incredibly successful by all uh, possible means he might win some, but that he himself could be disqualified from the prize. And that's why he says he's uh, so intent on the way that he's working towards his goal. And I think that this... Um, that when we do this, when we, we work uh, with uh, means that might disqualify us, we um, are misunderstanding God's providence and omnipotence. Do we think that God's ends will be achieved by our actions or even thwarted by our sins? If our ends are in line with God's will, we can have every confidence that they will be accomplished with or without us. The Old Testament is full of God proving that he can use anyone, the smaller the better, the least likely the better, to accomplish his goals. Uh, he picks the least impressive son of Jesse to become the mighty King David, and the destitute Moabite widow Ruth is that person's great-grandmother. 
And we see wicked people who accomplish God's plans and actually then are punished for the ways in which they did it. Pharaoh's hardened heart leads to the spectacular deliverance of Israel. Um, the wicked king Nebuchadnezzar is called God's servant for punishing Israel, but then he himself is punished for his own wickedness. Judas's betrayal of Jesus leads to the salvation of all humankind. And Jesus says, for this must happen, but it would, be, would have been better for him if he were never born. If our labors help to bring about God's kingdom and glory, it's worth remembering that Judas almost, certainly, almost certainly accomplished more. Our righteousness is as filthy rags to God, and our works where they bear fruit are testimony to God's unstoppable providence. In Psalm 50, the poet de describes God as bored of showy works like animal sacrifices. He says, I have no need of a bull from your stall or goats from your pen, for every animal of the forest of mine is mine and the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird in the mountains and every insect in the field. And if I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you because the world is mine and all that's in it. So how do we measure success? I think, again, it means looking at our ways rather than our goals. When Saul offers unauthorized sacrifices, Samuel rebukes him and the prophet tells the king, does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices? And again, sacrifices here, I think, is not the self-sacrifice I was talking about earlier, but the actual physical act of um, showing that you're, you know, you're, you're killing an animal in, in um, a sort of important way. Does he de uh, delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. God is saying that faithful obedience is what God has asked of us. And whatever ends follow, we can be confident that we are part of his unstoppable plan whenever we're following the ways that he's given us. So are there ways that you feel tempted to offer unauthorized and disobedient sacrifices uh, to help along God's kingdom? When you talk about your faith with unbelievers, are you, are you tempted to embellish your own conversion story or describe your experience of God in ways that maybe you don't actually feel and aren't truly authentic. Here at church, do you feel tempted to spiritualize ideas or desires that you have by calling them without careful consideration a word from God? Are there things at work, at home, or even here at church that prick your conscience every time you think of them, but which you justify because the end result that these things that prick your conscience are doing seem so godly? If so, then these are places I think where we should examine ourselves and repent where the Spirit convicts us. Now, I'm also aware that many of us are also somewhat prone to scrupulosity, that paralyzing legalism, where messages like today can send us into a tailspin of evaluating, evaluating every action and undoing good things out of fear that we're somehow offering unauthorized fire or striking a rock without permission. Um, is it possible that God might disapprove of our, our work um, in some sort of way, like a, a gotcha deity like Hades, who in the Greek mythology traps Persephone because she ate three uh, pomegranate seeds. Is the God who uh, John says is described most accurately by love truly that capricious? Is he so strict in his justice that he has forgotten mercy? To anyone feeling so paralyzed or obsessing about something you feel like you need to fix, you might be focused, again, too much on your own means uh, rather than on God's ends. By all means, confess your sins and correct the ways in which you've strayed. But as we seek uh, to ensure that our ways are worthy of our ends, remember that Jesus tells us that he himself is the way. And as we trust in him, 
our ways will slowly be conformed to the, the way of Jesus. It's easier to discuss specifics uh, individually, and the prayer team, who's on the back of the bulletin, or I would be happy to talk about you if you feel um, a particular conviction. And I'll also be joining the, um, no, actually leading the, uh, the discussion group today in the lounge. For others, though, a message like today may stir in us a desire to contradict or simply ignore a conviction that's currently tugging at our heart. And I urge you and me not to ignore this conviction, but to talk to someone about what you feel that you might need to do as a way of perhaps keeping yourself accountable. Um, and so we can run in such a way as to win the prize, like Paul says. And I think all of us can usefully submit ourselves in complete and helpless surrender to the prayer that Jesus said was a model for how we should pray. So if you'll allow me, let, let's say that prayer together if you know it. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever.